Welcome back to Canna Week, brought to you by New Frontier Data, where we deliver top headlines in cannabis and hear experts weigh in on the impact these stories are having on the industry. I'm your host, Abby Kaufman, and it is my honor to introduce our guest for this week's episode. In addition to serving as the president of Women Grow, Gia Marone is also the founder and CEO of GVM Communications. Gia, welcome to Canna Week. Thank you, Abby. It's a pleasure to be here. Longtime friends of New Frontier Data. I think you're an amazing company and I'm looking forward to this conversation. Well, we are as well. And along with Gia, we are joined by Canna Week regular and chief knowledge officer here at New Frontier Data, Mr. John Kagia. John, welcome back. Uh, delighted to be back, Abby. Thank you very much for having us. My pleasure. To dive right in, given the role that Women Grow plays in empowering and connecting women in cannabis, we are going to start today's episode with a recent article from MJ Biz Daily stating that Nevada's cannabis industry lacks diversity, especially in ownership, according to a recent survey. So Nevada's first official demographic survey of cannabis businesses shows that women and minorities account for a disproportionately small percentage of the local marijuana industry with an even more notable disparity in ownership and management positions. Women account for nearly 50% of Nevada's population, but only 38% of cannabis professionals in the state identified as female. So why, Gia, from your experience working with women across the nation, why do you believe women are underrepresented in Nevada's cannabis industry? I say from the women grow perspective, what we hear time and time again is lack of access to capital. And, you know, as we all know that this industry um, really, you know, it, its entryway depends on the support and the private um, capital support that one can get um, in, in regards to entry. And so if women do not have the access to, um, you know, the vast sum that's needed um, to acquire, whether it's a vertical license or uh, some sort of other plant-touching license, uh, then, you know, it prohibits them into entering the space. But then when you look at it from the ancillary side of the business, uh, I mean, you know, in terms of small businesses, I think that there's a growing number there, but probably not enough where they're even being acknowledged in terms of the, the data. Yeah, absolutely. John, is there anything you'd like to add about the what this survey has shown about the um, ownership and uh, within the Nevada cannabis industry? Yeah, just building on, on GS point, you know, I think Nevada is a good illustration of let's call it the new um, cannabis environment relative to some of the older, uh, more mature markets, um, like say Colorado, Oregon, Washington, um, and California. And, and uh, the distinction I'm drawing there is. You know, if you look at what it costs to get operationalized in uh, the markets that were first to legalize in terms of getting a business license, getting a, a store or uh, facility open, um, you know, five to 10 years ago, you could do that with relatively small amounts of capital. And so the barriers to participation were actually uh, lower and for, for, for participation for people who may not necessarily have had access to uh, deeply liquid uh, to, or, or deeply liquid individuals or uh, significant uh, quantities of, of private capital. Um, because you know, if, it, if it's going to take uh, fifty to one hundred thousand dollars, that's maybe the sort of capital that um, a second mortgage on the house could do, or, or pooling um, capital from from a few friends could could get you to. But when you look at 
you know, the, the cost to get licensed in some of these uh, newer, more tightly regulated, more, more competitive and complex markets, um, you know, you've gone from the hundreds of thousands of dollars deep into the millions of dollars. And, and that really uh, uh, raises um, uh, the threshold in terms of capital that you need to participate and the types of access which uh, people who may not necessarily be sitting in these networks with high net, network, net worth individuals um, are, are able to tap. And, you know, one of our concerns is as you look particularly at the Eastern markets where they're much more likely to be, be more tightly regulated, they're going to be phenomenally competitive. Um, this issue of capital required to just get a foot in the door um, is, is going to be a challenge. And I think that they're going to need to be some uh, regulatory or policy mechanisms to ensure that particularly while private capital remains a primary driver for market activation, um, that people who may not necessarily be in those high net worth circles um, are able to get a seat at the table because if it's not done now, um, it becomes much, much more difficult to do it two, five, 10 years from now um, uh, as the barriers to participation grew, grew ever higher. Absolutely. And so speaking of the, the barriers to, uh, to participation um, in Nevada, for, for example, um, Recreational cannabis licenses are limit are not only limited but also require applicants to possess at least two hundred fifty thousand dollars in liquid assets. So, in addition to these types of financial hurdles that both of you touched on, um, Gia, do you feel that there are other obstacles which disproportionately impact women who are interested in entering the cannabis industry? See, it's interesting because we're focused on Nevada, and um, you know, in giving this some thought. You know, I feel like it's a reflection of what we're seeing across the country overall, um, even from some of the older markets. Uh, you know, it, it's almost as though it's been a trickle down um, issue, whereas we thought that we would address these barriers of entry where we saw this in the older markets and that as it continues to legalize state over state that we would improve where actually the issue continues. Uh, and you know, it's interesting. I'd, I'd love to say we have a solution or there is a solution. I think there are many solutions. It's just applying them, right? And so if women um, are, are faced with barriers of entry, um, you know, as, as John pointed out, you know, their lack of access to even the networks of, of uh, private equity um, funding, you know, for us, we're always looking for where can women go to even connect with those networks? How can they be introduced to those networks? Uh, because they are out there, right? It's just a matter of those networks considering these women-owned businesses for funding. And so it's not just within the state of Nevada, but I'd say from across the country. And what's interesting, if we were to compare what's happening in cannabis to other industries, What's interesting now, because it's important for us to look at what other industries are doing, they're creating these funds, right? These women-owned funds that are looking to invest in women-owned businesses. Wouldn't it be just amazing if we're able to do the same thing in the cannabis industry? Absolutely. Um, John, is there anything you'd like to add, add to that about the um, you know, other types of hurdles and also some of the solutions to help women in cannabis overcome those? Well, I think there's also a, a huge role that education plays. And, and this is why I think organizations like Women Grow um, are so valuable and so critically important to the market, given where we are right now. 
um, candidate. And I think there's there's still a lot of misunderstanding about the nature and the scale of the opportunity in cannabis for female entrepreneurs. And I see it really straddling kind of two dimensions. Uh, one is, despite how quickly the legal cannabis environment has, has evolved, we are still in the first inning of this race. And, and in many respects, the, the, there's still so much room for innovation, for, for um, kind of rewriting the way the game is being played or the way business is done in, in this space, because this, it is still an, such an immature and nascent market. And there's still so much room for growth. You know, bear in mind, we're, we're still, you know, we, we, we still um, have only about a couple of dozen states where it's legal for adult use and, and have the full both domestic map and international uh, uh, market to grow into. So um, in an environment where there's phenomenal room for upside growth, um, I, I think there's uh, room, one, for education around um, just the nature of this opportunity and, and why, um, despite the pace of the market, there's there's you know, still a lot of upside uh, growth potential, but also too, you know, women are critically kind of compelling uh, market opportunity within, within this space. And I say this all the time, the idea that, uh, you know, you've got men sitting around a table uh, coming up for products aimed at women in this space just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And um, I think that the idea of um, uh, products by women for women um, is going to be one of the major growth potential categories uh, for this market in the future. And, and, you know, that's another gap that I don't think is discussed often enough. Um, and whose scale of opportunity I don't think has been uh, kind of articulated clear enough to, to resonate with female entrepreneurs who I think um, could really both thrive in this environment, uh, but also reshape the, the, the kind of market opportunity for, um, for products at what remains a significantly underserved demographic uh, in, in this marketplace. Can I just Absolutely. add to that? Because yeah. what I find interesting about that is I think it's no surprise that, you know, women are, you know, the, the largest demographic in terms of um, consumer purchases, right? So we spend over a trillion dollars or so, right, in the marketplace. And then when you look at um, in terms of entrepreneurship, there's a vast number of women who have entered the entrepreneurship um, realm. It's just the um, it's the success rate, right? How long can they survive? How much support are they getting? And so I love that John touches on the education piece because I think oftentimes that's what happens, especially as um, women ownership or or entrepreneurs enter the market, right? It's that survival rate. Can you make it over the five years? And oftentimes some of those businesses fail due to lack of support, lack of mentorship, lack of education, and knowing how to grow and scale your business. And so when you think about what's happening in Nevada, and again, I don't see, you know, I'd love to say, oh, it's, you know, it's only happening in Nevada and, and it's unique to only just that region, but that's not the case. We are seeing this time and time again. It is about financial support and education. Uh, and, but it's nothing new because, you know, as, as, as a uh, women, women's organization, we have to look at what's happening in other industries. And we are seeing um, some similarities and recognizing that if we don't begin to step up and provide um, some of these resources to women-owned businesses, we will begin to lose women ownership and its stakehold in the growth of this industry. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for, for adding that. Um, 
and I think that's a wonderful point that some of these barriers and obstacles with, uh, you know, female entrepreneurs in, that they're facing in cannabis are not necessarily always unique to the cannabis industry. Um, but to get back to like women in, in the cannabis industry um, and away from N Nevada specifically, are there any um, states or lessons from other states that um, that you would like to share or that have been kind of uh, good examples for, for how to build in that framework um, and in other states that are still ironing out their regulatory framework for legal cannabis that might be more um, help overcome some of those obstacles that we've discussed that you can think of, Gia? You know, it, it's a great question and, and it's something that we're asked often. Um, What's interesting is that women and minorities are always grouped together when we think about regulations, right? And um, while I'd like, you know, as as a head of, of of a women's company, I can't agree that the 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 inter the parallels are the same because they're not, right? When you think about women, there's a breakdown in terms of racial demographics, right? We know that. Caucasian women tend to get a little bit more support than women of other cultural backgrounds. And so, you know, when I look at what the landscape overall in terms of what other states are doing, I believe that they're making efforts, right, to make sure that women and minorities are part of um, any sort of regulatory um, legislative practices and making sure they're included. But there are many states we've had to go back to make sure that that was actually written in. I mean, you look at the licenses that are given out, you know, in the medical states and the numbers have not reflected, um, you know, in favor of women ownership. So what I will say is that I, what I've recognized is that states that are being held accountable are going back to the table to make sure that um, that women and minorities are being a part or are being included, right, in in um, those regulations. But that is not without them being held accountable to it. And I, that I actually think, um, you know, many of the advocates in these states and organizations like Women Grow and many others that are, you know, talking to our legislators to say, hey, as you're writing this reform, make sure that women and minorities are included and that they are at least getting a fair consideration in terms of entry point. Absolutely. Um, and yeah, it'd be nice if it was built in from the beginning, but at least I guess going back and looking at it later on is better than nothing at times. The reason why that's so important is when you think about 2020, right? 2020 was a historical year in terms of it was the 100th anniversary of the women's voter rights, right? But if you think about it historically, there was still an aftermath of women still making sure to push forward that same messaging of equality, right? Of inclusion. And so what we're seeing is that we must continue to apply the pressure and, and hold those practices accountable so that it, we hope that would be an everyday practice, but it's not, right? And so I think it's our responsibility as responsible businesses in this industry that we are doing those checks and balances to make sure that women are um, part of the inclusive um, language. That's such an important point, Gia, and, and using the 2020, particularly the cannabis election cycle that 2020 represented, 
you know, I think it affirms to me that this idea that cannabis has a lot of uh, wind on its back in terms of just the momentum of public support and uh, the regulators, whether who are being who are, who are now finally coming around to the social justice message, who are coming around to the tax revenue potential, who are coming around to the medical and therapeutic um, uh, potential and applications. So there's a lot of tailwind driving this industry forward. But while it may be easy to to legalize, it, you know, it remains a consistent and ongoing challenge to ensure a well-regulated and equitable industry. And, and I think for advocates who are in this space, it's critical to remember that, you know, once the ball gets rolling, um, you know, the, or, or once the, the switch gets flipped into a uh, legal environment, uh, the race isn't over because there's going to continue to be um, these issues which are foundational to the way, uh, to the structure and the architecture of the industry uh, that will continue to need to be addressed. And, um, you know, waiting too long to address them uh, makes it that much more difficult to ensure that this, these become um, uh, foundational issues that, that get woven to the tapestry of the industry. Uh, you don't want this to be something that gets bolted on at the end um, and, and um, because of that ends up making it more difficult for uh, uh, um, the communities being included uh, to get an equitable seat at the table. So certainly a conversation that needs to begin well before um, the, the new laws are enacted. But even once they're enacted, it's really, really critical that uh, both the business community and the regulatory and policy community, as Gia said, get their feet held to the fire, get held accountable uh, to ensure that not just the spirit, but the letter of the law, um, the letter of the regulations are being, are being met. Um, and if not, that the rules are rewritten to ensure that um, the spirit of their intent are being achieved. Well, and what I'd add to that is, you know, part of the, the issues that we've seen in the past, and when you think about, as John mentioned earlier, you know, the early stages of cannabis where, um, you know, the, the cost of entry isn't as high as it is today, but also who was at the table then, right? Um, so, we have to make sure that the decision makers at the table also reflect all of this, you know, as a whole, right? And so, you know, as we're discussing what's happening in Nevada, again, as I've mentioned that, you know, it's, it's very much a reflection of what we've seen state over state, but that oftentimes happens because there aren't women at the table. There aren't minorities at the table. And so if you have those voices at the table, and if you have those voices who are also um, voices of authority who can speak in terms of in the C-suites, on board seats, who are able to stand up to make sure that we are being inclusive and that we are being cohesive as an industry to say, hey, let's make sure that this is um, being reflected state over state, and that it becomes a common practice within our industry so that we're not going back to these numbers year over year to saying why why the decline. I understand a decline in a, in a down market in terms of financial. That makes sense. We did pretty well <laughs> as an industry. So our numbers, to me, should reflect that, um, not only just in terms of economics, but also in terms of um, representation. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, and so for the next article, we'll take a little bit of a step back from the state level legalization and representation to look at the changing national landscape of cannabis in America uh, with an article, uh, Marijuana Moment reported that a recent poll shows that legal marijuana is more popular than Joe Biden, the $15 minimum wage, or rejoining climate agreement. 
So 61% of the survey's respondents said that they supported recreational cannabis, while 57% supported rejoining the Paris Climate Accord and 49% approved of Joe Biden's job performance so far. So from this survey result, it seems that legalizing cannabis is more popular than ever. Um, Gia, to what would do you attribute this recent surge in, in popularity and in support for, for federal legalization? Well, <laughs> one, I think all arrows are pointing that way, right? Um, I would say, had the pandemic not happened and cannabis was not deemed an essential business, we might be having a different conversation. But I think even for us in the industry, once it was recognized as an essential business, I even think mainstream thought that's really interesting. But I think it takes the work that we've all done collectively, right, to apply the pressure to make sure that those dispensaries remained open and those cultivations continued to produce the product, right, that's needed for patients. And, and I call us all patients, even in the adult use market. But I mean, I think for that, in and, and looking at the sales, right, during the pandemic, really supports how much cannabis can support the overall economics of this, you know, of, of, of the country. So I'd imagine that anyone in leadership would, would look at those numbers and say, you know what, this is something to take seriously. And now we need to really focus on federal legalization. I think we've, we've talked around it enough that it's time to actually address it head on. Yeah, absolutely. And so, and that's a great point about the, the role of the, the essential business and, and the pandemic and kind of, you know, state struggling state economies. John, um, do you have anything you'd like to add about, about this, you know, apparent surge in popularity um, and, and this, you know, ongoing legalization conversation on a national scale? So, so I think th there's a couple of things that just building on, on GS point, and, and I agree entirely that um, not only the declaration of um, cannabis as an essential business, but also the outsized performance um, of cannabis relative to uh, every other types of uh, every other type of business that was open during uh, during the, the broad shutdowns um, is is an important driver. Um, but I also think there's a demographic issue at play. If you start looking at um, the the generation of voters who are uh, now a little bit older than when you know cannabis was first legalized in Colorado six years ago who are playing a lot more of an influential role in our national conversation um, particularly for um, uh, lawmakers who are representing either democratic or more liberal leaning jurisdictions particularly jurisdictions with younger audiences um, you know the, the the idea of of one cannabis being um, something that one would oppose is completely off the table now. There, there are very few lawmakers um, who uh, will now come out in strong opposition to particularly medical legalization, but even against um, some reform to federal law is becoming a more a difficult position, a more tenuous position to hold on to. Second, um, as we look at the shape, the, the, the um, shape of the national map uh, coming out of the 2020 election cycle, um, where uh, you have now over 90% of Americans uh, living in a jurisdiction which has reformed its cannabis laws in some way. So where um, I think there's only four states left on the map where cannabis remains completely illegal, including CBD. 
um, you know, the, there's the, the size of the quote-unquote canvas caucus, and I use that term generally just to mean uh, lawmakers who are representing jurisdictions which have made advancements toward canvas reform, uh, is much larger. And, and um, at a time when cannabis is a cash cow for a lot of economies, I don't mean to suggest that cannabis is going to pay off, um, you know, fixing the electrical grid in, in Texas or, um, you know, rebuilding the... the um, economies that have been battered uh, due to declines in, in operational infrastructure, the industrial uh, sectors that, that have a long way to come back to, uh, from recovering. Cannabis is not a panacea, but in, in many respects, in many jurisdictions, um, this is money that you can't say no to. We're in, in an environment where every penny counts. Um, uh, cannabis is producing a lot of pennies that can, can help uh, address, the national, uh, address the national story. And then third, um, I think Colorado in particular is a really compelling case study in terms of the longitudinal impact of cannabis regulation. So uh, we're a little over six years into the uh, experiment in Colorado. And there were a lot of lawmakers who, who uh, both privately and publicly, uh, were presenting a, a very, very doom and gloom story about what would happen in that state, um, uh, giving the, the old kind of mark my words, we will come to rue this day. And if you look at, at the performance of Colorado um, across a number of dimensions, the level of investment that Colorado has made in education in particular, uh, the amount of education it is, uh, of, of revenue it has now been able to allocate to everything from mental health to substance abuse programs uh, uh, and, and uh, retraining of policing uh, in, in the way uh, uh, drug policy is enforced. Um, the, the fact that Colorado, um, in this context of being a cannabis legal state, um, has been one of the uh, states that has seen the highest in, in, uh, influx um, of young adults over the past um, over the past six years. Clearly, um, cannabis is not the only reason why Colorado has been both such a high performing and such an attractive market to look for. Look for, but it certainly played a role, and, and you can see that 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 idea uh, reflected in a lot of the population studies. So. Um, that, the, the idea that legalization, even in jurisdictions where this has historically been um, uh, viewed with kind of conservative concern, um, the fact that a lot of those concerns have just not been manifest in some of these longer longer states, I think is leading to a reassessment of, you know, does, does prohibition in its current form uh, achieve the greater good for our society? And, and the, those things taken together, um, uh, I think are leading to, to accelerated momentum toward legalization. And then finally, I think the Democrats are really trying to get ahead of the 2022 midterm elections. Um, generally, when one party holds the House, uh, the Senate and the White House, um, uh, they face a really tough challenge in, in their first midterm election after that. And if there's a risk that the Republicans will either take the House or the Senate in that midterm cycle, um, then the Democrats want to get as much done uh, as they can within the next two years. So I think that's also part of the propulsion uh, behind the support for legalization. Absolutely. Thank you, John. Um, Do you mind, so how, can I add something, Abby? Yeah, of course, absolutely. I'll no, tell please. you what's interesting that I've observed in terms of even cannabis sales, um, in terms yeah. of popularity. So when you actually go back to 2020, right, we've already talked about cannabis um, deemed, you know, essential business, but the you know, in terms of not even just the rec market, but just the sales overall. When I looked at data during the Thanksgiving holiday, Christmas holiday, and even most recently, 
Valentine's Day. Do you know cannabis sales surged like no other year? And, and I thought to myself, that's really interesting. The, and I'll even add to that, the amount of women that either purchased or requested cannabis as a gift becomes almost like the new flower replacement, right? So it's rather interesting in terms of when we think about popularity, when you think about five years ago, that's not at all what have been on, you know, on the table for discussion. But the popularity of it also, I think, plays into, you know, the mainstream coverage of the industry of people becoming more comfortable with even having that conversation of understanding what our products are, right? It's, so it's not only just on the governmental front, but I also think it's on the sales and marketing front um, that draws the popularity. As mainstream becomes more knowledgeable about the products or, or the branding of our industry, of course, that drives sales. And so when you think about what happened during 2020, where, you know, um, people were limited in terms of their, um, you know, exposure or, you know, um, venturing out, you know, to what their typical activities would have been. But they turned to, uh, when, when you compared sales of alcohol to cannabis, cannabis was actually higher, which is rather interesting. And so when you think, going back to John's point in terms of, you know, the conversations I'm sure that are being had on the Hill, when you begin to look at the sales that are happening within the cannabis industry versus alcohol and any other, I would imagine that they are looking at it from a federal standpoint, because if this is where the dollars are going and this is where the people are voting, especially after that green wave, then I would imagine that the minds, not necessarily hearts, but the minds are, are changing because the voters are changing. That is a great point. Yeah. Thank you so much uh, for adding, adding that. And uh, that, that's an excellent point. Um, did not realize that about the Valentine's Day, but I guess that really is a whole different type of, of flower. Um, <laughs> Just a quick point to add to that, and I love that yeah. point. Because it tells to me um, two different stories about where the cannabis industry is. Um, one is a point about, because I don't think the, the impact that the industry has had during this pandemic in 2020 would have been possible if the pandemic had happened even two or three years ago. And part of it is a reflection of just the diversity of products that are available in the market has allowed kind of engagement with cannabis products for a whole new crop of consumers uh, in ways that I think many consumers just had not realized were possible pre-pandemic. I think there's been a lot of tire kicking in, in, by consumers in the legal market who may have been very, very um, occasional consumers uh, who thought, you know, whose experience was largely confined to the flower in the market who are now kind of going to dispensaries, seeing these menus online and realizing, hell, I can get drinks, I can get lotions, uh, I can get sexual lubricants for Valentine's Day. I mean, the, the diversity of, um, of products, I think, is, has been really catalytic in uh, um, elevating the way consumers think about how they can integrate cannabis into their lives. But there's a second part to that story is it's also changing the face of who the cannabis consumer is. Absolutely. I think for lawmakers, it was really easy to, to uh, continue to perpetuate this, this uh, very stereotypical caricature of a cannabis consumer. But you can't do that coming through this pandemic experience uh, when it's clear that every shape, color, stripe and form of person is consuming cannabis in, in this society. Um, and so the, the, the when... Um, the, the cannabis consumer increasingly looks like uh, the people sitting around your dinner table. 
um, it becomes much more difficult to, to ostracize, to character, uh, characterize them um, in, in, in disparaging terms. And I think it forces a much more meaningful consume, uh, conversation uh, about where cannabis sits in our society. It goes back to that education, John. It goes back to the point of education, as well as the, um, in terms of the demographics of where who's, who's purchasing, right? Oftentimes, I think the impression is that the um, average um, age of the, the the consumer is with it like the millennial age when it actually isn't. It's the much much older, uh, more mature consumer. And when you consider the um, senior community, right, the the um, those who are sixty five and older, who who pretty much take up a pretty um, high percentage of the um, of just being consumers in this industry. I think it really does change the narrative overall in terms of the face of, and I think, it, again, it goes back to the education, but heck, maybe it is about some people who are tapping back into, you know, I really enjoyed cannabis, but I didn't know that I could now use it in other formats and the options of having um, other consumption methods, whether through, you know, inhalable or topical or whatever have you, I think it does drive the popularity and um, the sales. And yeah, and again, all arrows pointing towards federal legalization. <laughs> That's right. And, and so um, to, for the final question, before we get final thoughts from, from you both, and thank you so much, that was, those were excellent points. Um, so the poll in the Marijuana Moment article, it, it comes as Democrats, speaking of federal legalization, are preparing to introduce legislation to end cannabis prohibition nationwide. So. Gia, do you have any predictions or thoughts on their odds, given this increasingly broad public support that we've discussed? You know, it's interesting. So we've got this new administration, right? That, that's that's in, in the House, and we're happy to have them there. Uh, you know, my, my eyes are more on um, not just on the federal level, but also seeing what, the, what messages the states are sending to the federal level. Um, you know, just looking, I'm here in New York City, and so just yesterday, um, New Jersey just passed its laws, and so now that's now in effect. But the amount of eyes from, um, you know, the, the, our nation's capital that are looking at what's happening, yeah, I do believe we're going to see some movement. Why? Because many of the people that are um, pushing um, that that narrative on um, on the Hill are pretty much from the tri-state area, which is why I pointed out when I think about Chuck Schumer, when I think about Cory Booker. Um, and so that's why I made that comparison in terms of, you know, they've been huge supporters in terms of federal legalization. And so I do believe that we'll see it. How soon? Um, it's a little tricky because I, I'd like to say it, I, you know, I'd love to see it happen this year. Um, I don't know if it'll happen that soon. But I wouldn't be surprised if we see federal legalization happen in 2022. All right. And then, John, what about you? Do you have any predictions or thoughts on their odds? I know that you mentioned the 2022 midterms and, and kind of gearing up for that. That's why um, I, I mentioned 2022. That's where I yeah. see it. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. John, anything you'd like to, to add on that? So uh, I think it is part of the challenge with getting it all done this year is you know, the the you will find all of the 
or building a coalition or consensus on what policy should look like, I think will be quite challenging. Um, you know, there's a lot of lawmakers who are representing jurisdictions that will want to see one shape, type of regulation versus another. Um, so, so while I think it's really important that the conversation has started, I don't think this is something that you can slap dash together, uh, given the, the diversity of, of critical issues that still need to be to, to be addressed. And just a few off the top. Um, the distinction between legalization and decriminalization at the federal uh, level. So, so will they deschedule um, uh, cannabis, make it a state level issue, or will they legalize it, uh, affording a federal apparatus to govern to govern state policies? Those are two hugely divergent uh, approaches, uh, and each will have phenomenal consequent uh, phenomenally consequential implications for the way state markets operate. Um, if they go the route of legalization, uh, then what does that mean for banking, for taxation, for imports and exports, inter interstate and uh, with international markets? There's a lot of chatter coming out of Canada uh, talking about how federal legalization will allow Canadian products into um, American uh, dispensary shelves. And in my mind, I just don't see American retailers, or American uh, brands and products uh, eagerly signing up to have competition coming in from north of the border, um, given how much they have invested to build their capacity domestically. Um, and a similar issue at the state level, you know, the, the operators in New York, I don't think are going to be particularly keen to have product coming in from California, uh, given how much they've invested to build capacity in their state. So these are some of the issues that um, will either need to be addressed or deferred to uh, under federal law and, and getting a consensus on what that policy should look like, I don't think it's going to be an easy process. There may be consensus that it is time to reform uh, federal policy, which is why I actually think uh, descheduling rather than uh, um, uh, legalization per se um, may be more likely. But I, given <laughs> how Congress has behaved over the past few years, um, I'm, I'm loath to hazard a, hazard a guess on precisely what form this is going to take. Um, or dates certain of when it's going to be, when it's going to happen, but I do think it is likely to happen before 2022, before the end of 2020. Can I can I just add to that because I think what you said, John, is so key. You know, we started out the conversation talking about um, women and and small you know and business owners in Nevada, and so when you think about federal legalization, it's important to make that distinction between the two because. If we do, and when we do go federally legal, we must be prepared to have a banking system in place. And so while we are, you know, asking and, and fighting for federal legalization, if it's not done right, there's a lot of businesses that could be impacted, right? If 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 left, uh, I don't want to say if left undone, right? Mm -hmm. But I agree, you know, if we were to go for decrim and 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 descheduling i think that's the first rollout but you know in terms of full on federal legalization i would imagine that we would have to have everything in place otherwise the impact of what could happen to women small i'm not even saying small business owners but women business owners minority business owners not having the, the these these um tools in place to support them on a federal level um, could be catastrophic, honestly. And I think we could see a severe downturn um, in market because, you know, not having a banking system, it's, it's one of those conversations I have quite often, the fact that we've survived this long, um, but that's often the reason why many of our small businesses in the industry do not survive. 
or that lack of support. So if we're going to do federal legalization, we must make sure that um, safe banking is in place. That's an excellent point and a wonderful, wonderful way to kind of tie everything together um, from both parts of the conversation. So thank, thank you, Gia. Um, do you have any final thoughts that you'd care to share with our listeners before we wrap up this, this episode? And again, it's been such a pleasure having you on. One, it's an honor to be here with you, Abby. I greatly appreciate um, the invitation. John, it's always a pleasure to just <laughs> be in your presence, even if it is virtually. Um, you know, what I would say um, in terms of parting words, while we tend to see a cycle, you know, through the industry of the um, ebbs and flows and the, the ups and downs in terms of women representation, uh, what, I, what I'm always hopeful and what I'm always inspired by is always the comeback. Women always bounce back in this industry. And when I look at the advocates who are in the forefront, oftentimes those are women who are, who are paving the way, leading the way. When I look at the number of women who are entering into the finance space within cannabis, they're also recognizing that we do have to set up these um, vehicles to create a support system so that women can gain um, access to capital within this industry. So I'm very hopeful about the future in this industry for women. And I'm especially hopeful for minorities within this industry as well. Uh, but I think it is important that we do drive education, that we do put the proper protocols in place, and that we do hold um, businesses and um, you know, indivis individuals in this industry accountable. Um, we must, we must be reminded that inclusivity actually does so much better for the economy and um, recognizing that cannabis is definitely necessary, right? We saw that after last year and we're seeing that again and again. So that would be my, um, my parting words in terms of um, what I see next. Growth. Wonderful. Well, thank you again so much, Gia. And that's again from from Women Grow. You can go to womengrow.com to learn more about the work that they're doing. Thank you, Gia, again for joining us. And thank you all for listening and joining us at Canna Week. Uh, don't forget to like and subscribe to the podcast uh, to listen in every week. And to access New Frontier Data's Cannabis Business Intelligence Portal and sign up for your free seven-day Equio basic trial subscription, visit equio.io, that's E-Q-U-I-O I-O. I'm your host, Abby Kaufman, and I'll see you next week. New Frontier Data provides this podcast for entertainment purposes only. Nothing stated in this podcast should be taken as legal or financial advice. Reference to any specific product or entity does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by the company. The views expressed by guests are their own and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. Views and opinions expressed by New Frontier Data employees are those of the employees and do not necessarily reflect the view of the company or any of its officials. If you have any questions about this disclaimer, please contact our legal department.